Again, good morning, everyone. Uh, great to be here with you, as always. And it's always a privilege to be able to open up God's Word together. Uh, today, uh, we are once again in the book of Second Peter, and we're actually, uh, if you can believe it, we are almost finished with the book. Uh, Lord willing, uh, we will wrap things up next Sunday. Uh, I'm sure uh, the majority of us here don't know the name Richard Baxter. Uh, but Baxter was a well-known pastor uh, who ministered in the 1600s, and he wrote several books and published pages upon pages of uh, Bible study material. Uh, some of his works are actually even uh, still used today. And what's impressive about uh, Baxter is that he published uh, more than 200 works in his lifetime, actually, and he did that all while living through some extremely severe trials and suffering. Um, I encourage you, uh, it would be worth reading about his life uh, sometime. But on one occasion, someone asked Baxter, they asked him this, hey, given all that you've, you've gone through, uh, all of your trials, all of your suffering, how is it that you have remained so productive and so faithful all of these years? And his short response was this. I think about heaven for 30 minutes every single day. I think about the new heavens and the new earth to come. I love that because it reminds me that the purpose of studying the end, or we call it eschatology, uh, the future, it reminds me that studying the end is not about making us into crazy fanatics. It's not about making us fearful or anxious, but about making us faithful and fruitful in the present. And today, as we open up 2 Peter chapter 3, what we see is essentially an entire chapter focused on the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's all about looking towards the end and living faithful lives in light of Jesus' certain return. Now, if you haven't been with us during this series in 2 Peter, uh, what we've been looking at or studying uh, over these past weeks together can really be summarized at the end of chapter 3, where Peter tells us to stay on guard. We're going to talk about that next week, actually. Stay on guard. Don't be drawn away from the faith. Be rooted in the gospel, he says. And in that, he tells us that we should be growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and his gospel. That's what this book is all about. We are to guard our hearts, protect our hearts, and guard the gospel because there are false teachers and false teaching among us, right? We studied that extensively as we worked through chapter 2. And one of the main things these false teachers were spreading, we talked about this as well, is that these false teachers were going around and they were denying the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so, as we turn over to chapter 3, we see that Peter specifically addresses that issue. He reminds us, he reminds the church of the certainty of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, or the day of God, Peter will call it in verse 12. Now, 
Um, if you are newer to the scriptures, um, newer to Christianity, newer to the Bible, uh, the day of the Lord, that phrase, the day of the Lord or the day of God, it's a phrase used throughout the scriptures, all throughout the scriptures. And when it's used, it's always in reference to uh, this final future day where there will be both judgment and salvation, final judgment and final salvation on this final day. It's a future day where God will dramatically and miraculously intervene into human history. And it will simultaneously be marked, again, by two things, by great distress, judgment, and great hope, that is, again, our salvation. On this future day, Jesus will return, and when he does, he will unleash his final judgment, and yet, again, bring about his final rescue. This is a day of the Lord. And so, of course, it will be a day like no other. Uh, we know that Jesus came to the earth the first time with meekness and with humility. You might say that he came low. But the day is coming when Jesus will come back high and lifted up as the exalted King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, all eyes will be on Jesus that day. And the reason that this is so important for us to study is first of all, because the, the second coming of Jesus is one of the primary themes of the Bible, actually. 1,845 times the Bible speaks about or alludes to this event, the second coming or the day of the Lord. And by the way, that is one verse out of every 30 verses in the Bible. And so this is a central teaching to our faith. It's a central event for our, uh, not just for our justification, but for our sanctification, for our growing to be more like Jesus, our discipleship. And it's also so important for us to study because people tend to go, let's say, a few different directions when it comes to talking about the end times and the second coming, right? On one end, uh, we find a lot of extremism where people do all sorts of things that the Bible never calls us to do, like, uh, for example, storing up a bunch of cans, uh, quitting our jobs, and moving out in the middle of the woods where there's no cell phone reception. Okay. On the other hand, a lot of us, on the other side, we just actually ignore this teaching altogether. Uh, maybe because we've seen the extremes and we want to stay away from it or not be associated with it. Or because, another piece, we just don't understand. Like we read about this end time stuff, Jesus coming back, and I don't really know, so we just kind of ignore it. But we need to know how practical this teaching is, how practical this doctrine is to our everyday lives. We, we need to see how the second coming isn't meant to make us, again, fanatical, but faithful. It's meant to bring us deep hope in the midst of despair. And so today, we're going to think about and consider the second coming. And what we're going to see Peter do in this text is give us a few truths related to the day of the Lord that I believe are immensely important for our growing to be more like 
the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? I'll show you four. The first one is this. The day of the Lord will come because God's word reveals it. Okay? It's the first thing I want us to see about the end. The day of the Lord. The day of God. Uh, it will come. It's certain because God's word reveals it. The screen is about to change, so write vigorously. (laughs) Verse 1 says this. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. And we'll pause there really briefly. Uh, Most likely, Peter is referring to what we know as the book of 1 Peter, uh, though that is debated. And it's actually not that important for our purposes today. But what is important and noteworthy is what Peter says next when he says this, in both of them, in both of these letters, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Peter has said something to this extent multiple times in this letter that he wants to remind them, remind us of the things that they already know. But here he adds that he wants to stir them up. He uses that phrase. It means he wants to engage not just their minds, but also their hearts. That he wants the the truth of Jesus' return to be in the forefront of our minds so that our affections would grow, so that we would be led to worship, to be in awe, to praise this King Jesus who is coming. And I think uh, this is a necessary reminder for all of us because we aren't often mindful of this, right? right? It doesn't come very natural to us to think about the second coming day in and day out. We can be very, I'll say, very earthbound, very earthly focused. We tend to dwell on the temporal, on the present, rather than the promises and the future to come. And so Peter says, I want to stir up your mind once again and remind you, this is verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So in contrast to the false teachers that Peter has addressed, again extensively, dedicates a whole chapter, chapter 2 to them, Peter says, You guys have a sincere mind, right? And I want to now stir that mind up by reminding you of what has been said to you and what has already been promised to you through God's word. See, when we open up God's word, when we open up the scriptures, when you open up that Bible, we know that we actually hear the Lord Jesus speak. We hear his words You could think of it this way, that when we open up the pages of the scriptures, it's sort of like you are opening up the mouth of God. You have that privilege today. You could practice that right in front of you. There's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. Just open it. You're opening up God's mouth. And so if you want to hear God speak, you open the book. And one of the things that God has said through the prophets of the Old Testament And affirmed through the apostles of the New Testament is this. He says it. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Scoffer is going to scoff. 
following their own sinful desires. I pray that that would go over, and it did. That's great. I'm so excited. It's written in my notes. <laughs> he says, first of all, first of all, meaning that this is important, not that he has a list for us, like first of all, second, third. It means this is of high importance, significance, that there will be people who come mocking you and condescending you, that they think that this whole idea of Jesus coming back, Jesus returning, and there being like all this destruction and judgment and a final salvation, they think that, the, that that's obnoxious. It's ridiculous. And you should expect this. It will happen in the last days, Peter says. And of course, we know that we have been in those last days for some 2,000 years now. The last days, it refers to the time after Jesus went up to heaven at the ascension in Acts chapter 1, and it goes on until the day that Jesus returns on the day of the Lord. That time period in between is referred to the last days. And so we are roughly 2,000 years into those final days now. And that's why for the last 2,000 years, by the way, we've had false teachers and we've had false teaching because God already said that it would happen. So let's not be bothered by it. We talked about this for the last couple of weeks. Let's not be surprised when we confront false teachers or when we hear false teaching. We should expect it because God's word says that it would be so. And here's what they say, these false teachers. Now we get a specific word from them. They will say this, where is the promise of his coming, his second coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Bottom line here, these false teachers, they claim that there seems to be no sign of God's involvement in the world. That's what they're saying. They look around and they say, you know, I don't know, really? Do you? I don't see anything. Do you see something supernatural going on? It seems like the world is just exist existing with some sort of like regularity. Things just continue to go like in a cycle. They say God has done nothing actually since the early pages of Genesis and since the time of Abraham, Moses. So why would you believe that God will intervene in the future and establish some sort of new heavens, new earth? Right? That's the idea here. They're bringing this into question. Now, we know that Peter has already addressed this because he argued back in chapter 2 that God has intervened in creation. And he uses the examples, if you remember, of Noah, the fallen angels, and, and Sodom to show us that God intervenes. And he's going to show us some more examples starting in verse 5. But I think it's also worth noting that these false teachers, these false teachers are overlooking one massive reality, one massive example of God's involvement in human history, and that, of course, is Jesus's first coming into human history, right? It's pretty obvious, but like, come on, that would be a great defense, right, if you were doing apologetics to these people. Like, seriously, right, not only did something happen since creation, right? But something really massive, something really major happened. Jesus came into the world. 
He lived, he died, he rose, he ascended. And that is being totally overlooked. Remember, Peter has told us already that they deny Christ. God intervened in the person of Jesus Christ and Jesus will come and intervene our world again. So Peter looks to the scriptures here and says, we can build our lives on the reality of the second coming because God's word reveals that it will happen. It will come to fruition. We can depend on that, bank our lives on it. Number two, we know the day of the Lord will come because God's work in the past supports it. Okay, It's another reality of the day of the Lord that I want us to see. We can be certain of the day of the Lord because God's work in the past supports it. God's word affirms it. God's work in the past supports it. So here again is where Peter pulls from some Old Testament examples to prove that God hasn't disregarded the world, that he has actually intervened in it, and that something has always happened and has always been happening. And he does that by actually starting with creation itself to show how God can take that which is chaotic and make it orderly. And then in Noah, showing how God can take that which is orderly and make it chaotic. Okay, you need to see that, right? Peter's doing something pretty, pretty poetic here, but pretty important. God can take that which is chaotic and make it orderly, but he can also do the reverse, that he can take that which is orderly and make it chaotic. Notice how he says it in verse 5. He says, For they deliberately overlook this fact, the false teachers, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So the first thing Peter talks about here is actually the, the forming or the shaping of the world which we know that God did by his spoken word, that God created the world, ex nihilo is the phrase. It means that he created the world, our earth, out of nothing, the universe. He just spoke and it was. The psalmist uh, put it like this, by the word of the Lord, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts, all the planets, the stars, the heavenlies. By the breath of his mouth, by his word, everything was made. So God spoke and life existed. But notice here, it says that he actually made it through water. It's interesting that he says that. Uh, he used water actually as an instrument for forming the world, like a tool. Uh, Peter is probably saying this to set up the idea of the flood, actually, and that example of judgment that we're going to see in the next verse. But you recall the early pages of Genesis. In chapter 1, verse 2, we read there that the Spirit of God was actually hovering over the waters, it tells us that. In other words, you can sort of picture that there was this watery chaos that covered the earth that made it uninhabitable for human beings, for you and I. And so we read that God, what God does there, Genesis tells us that he separates the waters and in that moment he forms the sky and simultaneously makes the dry ground. 
In other words, God forms the earth. And the point, again, being that God took what was chaotic. He took what was formless and void, and he forms it. He shapes it. He made it orderly. And then we see he does the opposite in verse 6. He says this, And that by means of these, same, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And again, this is a reference to the story of Noah, his ark, and the flood. So Peter says, In creation, God used water as means to form the earth, to bring about order. But then God used water in another way. He used water to bring chaos or destruction. He used water to flood the entirety of the earth. And so both of these examples are meant to point us once again to the reality that God has in fact intervened in our world. That God is intervening. And because of that, we can trust that he will continue to intervene in our world. And that's essentially verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So this is a message to the church, but it's also a message to the false teachers. It's a warning to those scoffers, right? He is saying, Peter's saying, listen, listen, don't fall asleep on this. Don't fall asleep on God's judgment. Don't fall asleep on his second coming. coming. This is a warning. God has a history of intervening in our world. And by his word, things were made. And by his things, or his word, things were destroyed. And so it will be again. So it will be on the day of the Lord. At the last day, Peter says, the world will be dissolved. Those who do not know Christ will face judgment. And with God's spoken word, just with his voice, a new heaven and a new earth will come to fruition, which will be inhabited by those who follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Peter says here, in the midst of all this you know, destructive language, what he's saying here is that God has done this sort of work in the past, and he'll do it again. And that's all that this is saying. We know the day of the Lord will come because the scriptures reveal it and God's work in the past supports it. And then number three, number three on the day of the Lord or about the day of the Lord, we know that God is patient in delaying it. Okay? It's another reality of the day of the Lord or the second coming of Jesus. God is patient. He is patient in delaying it. And, and this is very good news, by the way. Very good news. I was thinking about this this week, even. I am so, so thankful, so glad that Jesus didn't come back when I was 17 or 18 years old. So glad. I'm so glad that he gave me time to trust him, that he was patient enough to wait on me to believe in him, And if you're a follower of Jesus here today, you should feel the weight of that too. Praise God that he was patient. Peter says in verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. 
I love how Peter keeps calling the church, his readers, beloved now, by the way. Don't, don't, don't miss that. This is a guy who is such a strong personality. This is a man who denied Christ. This is a man in the Garden of Gethsemane when his Lord, his Savior, was being arrested, pulled out a sword, a dagger, and cut a man's ear off, ready to defend, like Jesus. That was Peter. But now he is tender-hearted and kind. And this is what Jesus does to us. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the false teachers were saying, where is Jesus? You could imagine their mocking voice. Oh, he's returning soon? Where is he? It's been a while, hasn't it? We've seen no sign of his involvement or God's involvement in the earth. And Peter says, first of all, you've disregarded history. You're ignorant. But let me also tell you why he hasn't come back yet, because he is so merciful. He is so patient that he is actually being gracious enough to give everyone time to repent, including you, scoffers, false teachers. And with that, let's understand, let's also understand here that God does not calculate time like we do. This is so difficult for us, so hard for us to understand. Um, It's actually a bit of a mystery But God, we know this, is on a much different timetable than us. And I was thinking about this as well, like time itself, right? Time has so much to do with our perspective, right? Like there's a fact about time, like the sun goes and we can calculate that around the earth. But a lot of things in regards to time has to do with our perspective. Like for example, have you noticed how different kids calculate time in comparison to adults. For example, if little little Jimmy asks you for ice cream and you tell them, him, yes, you can have it, absolutely. We'll go in about an hour. I'll take you in about an hour. To an adult, that is perfectly reasonable, right? That you would give your time. In an hour, you gotta finish up your things, pack things up, and you would go and get an ice cream. But for a toddler, that's a punishment. They question whether or not you even love them anymore. <laughs> right? I knew you hate me, I know it. We have to go now. An hour, that's forever, right? See, we all count slowlessness differently. What is slow? What is a long time? It's all different, depending on who you are, where you've been, how old you are, what you've experienced. In regards to Jesus and his second coming, let's be honest, from a human fleshly standpoint, it has seemed slow. Like, all right, Jesus, 
We're standing here with faith. We believe. But where are you? It's been a while. But in his view, it's been extremely short. And by the way, Peter isn't saying here that literally a thousand days, a thousand days is like one day for, a thousand years is like one day for, for Jesus, right? You get these people into like numbers, numerology, like, well, we're counting and it's been two days, but on the third day, and it's poetic, okay? He's just saying, to us, it seems like a while. To God, it seems really short. He doesn't count time the way that we do. We calculate it much differently. We're human beings, we're finite. God is God, he is infinite. And beyond that, again, we need to keep in mind the the main purpose of his delay. The reason for his delay is that he is being intentional, that he is giving people the opportunity to turn from him. And so the moment we say, why are you being so slow? Again, we go back to, oh my goodness, if he came 15 years ago, I wouldn't be in this equation. I'm glad he's slow in my time. So listen, we actually, as we're reading through these texts together today, we actually see a lot of grace in the middle of this chapter that is saying a lot about judgment. Let's not miss that. Peter is talking about God destroying the world here. He's actually talking about judging people. But at the same time, what we see in the new, in the new heaven that is to come, in the new earth that is to come, what we see is the promise of salvation, which means we should not fear the day of the Lord, that you and I should not fear the end, that we should actually anticipate it. We should look forward to it. That is, if you do what? Who gets to look forward to the day? Who? It is those, Peter says, who reach repentance. Reach repentance, he says. And that's actually an extremely comforting message for us this morning. This is such good news because anyone can repent, right? He doesn't say if you get yourself all cleaned up. He doesn't say if you get it all together, then you can look forward to that day. He doesn't say if your good works outweigh your bad works. He says, here's who has salvation. Here's who gets to obtain it. All who repent. That is, those who humbly confess their sin and place their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let's be clear on that. God is not, listen, God is not looking for perfect people. He is looking for humble people. He's looking for repentant people. But notice as well, God's patience, this is important, God's patience will not last forever. It comes to an end. This is verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. What that means is when you don't expect it. And countless people, countless groups have tried to tell us the day that Jesus would return. But no one knows. He will come like a thief. Any second. We don't know. But when he comes, Peter says, and then when he comes, the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So this speaks to the sort of uh, violent nature 
of the passing away of the heavens. That is all that God has created. Again, he reemphasizes the point. Everything will be dissolved. It will disintegrate. The current world that we live in will be no more. And a new earth, or you might say a renewed earth, will dawn. And let me just say, we know that all creation is longing for this day of redemption. This is Romans chapter 8. And and the reality of this glorious day to come should give us great hope here and now. Paul says this. He says, in this hope, in this hope, that is hope of Jesus' coming, he says, in this hope we are saved. And so we wait for it. We wait for this day of the Lord with patience. And yet at the same time, we wait on it with great expectation. And then notice Peter says, on that day, everything will be exposed. He's saying everything will be left uncovered, in other words. That we will all, every single one of us, will give an account of our lives. He's saying Jesus misses nothing. And this sobering reality is meant to spur us on to a life of godliness, which is where Peter goes next. That because Jesus' second coming will leave everything uncovered, there is a way in which we should live our lives. That's number four. We ought to live our lives in light of the second coming. Followers of Jesus should live their lives in view of Jesus' return. Look at verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Peter asked the question to all of us, how should we live our lives? And he tells us two things. We should live lives of holiness, that is godliness, and we should live lives of hope. So first, holiness, and we see that there in verse 11. Peter has emphasize this in both of his letters. He gives us, actually, Peter specifically, some of the strongest teaching in the New Testament on what it looks like practically for a follower of Jesus to live a godly life, to live a holy life. Remember, in the opening chapter of this book, chapter one, we worked through this together, that God has given us, he says, everything that we need to live a holy life, for life and godliness, that God has actually empowered us to live a life marked by godliness, a life that reveres God, a life that resembles Jesus. And in this, in this, we see how eschatology, how the day of the Lord, the end times, and ethics actually goes together. I think this is so important. The day of the Lord, end times, and ethics, that's why it's practical, actually works together. Because we know Jesus is coming. And in light of the reality that he is coming, we should be holy and be godly. That's the point of eschatology. That's the point of end times teaching. End times teaching, again, this is the third time I'm going to say it. It is not supposed to create 
chaos and confusion in your life. It is supposed to create holy living. That's the point. And then Peter says something very interesting in verse 12. He adds that this pursuit of godliness is necessary because we are all looking, uh, look at it here. Very interesting. He says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. In other words, this is a tough one, I'll admit to you, okay? But listen, even though God is sovereign, even though this is his timetable, even though he, of course, is providential, he is in charge of this final day. What Peter is saying here is that our actions do play a role in the fulfillment of this promise, which, of course, is consistent with the way in which we know God works. Because we know that God often works out his purposes through his people. And here, Peter says, we hasten, quicken, it means. We quicken the coming of the day. In other words, we speed it along. Some translations actually say it that way, that we speed up the day of the Lord. We speed up Jesus' second coming through our holy living. Now, let's be really honest here. Similar to us trying to sit down and figure out God's time versus our time, this truth is also a great mystery. And we are not given a whole lot of detail about the sort of thing. But we do have a few places where it's quite clear that our lives do matter when it comes to the return of Jesus. So, for example, when Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, you can read about this in Luke chapter 11, other places, but Luke chapter 11, the disciples asked him, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And he says, one of the ways we pray, he says this, pray this way, pray, your kingdom come. Like, we're to be praying for Jesus' kingdom to come. We're praying for this day of God to come. And I don't know about you, but I don't believe that God would give us a useless command. I believe that praying in accordance to this command, praying for his kingdom to come, has some sort of significance to the Lord. Another example is Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, when Jesus says that the gospel will be preached to all the nations, and then what will happen? Then the end will come. So his return, he's saying, will not come until the gospel is preached to the nations. And preaching the, to the gospel to the nations is on who? Us, right? So you can see God's work and our responsibility simultaneously coming together here. And you know what that does? What that reality does when you understand this truth it gives our lives such incredible significance, doesn't it? That while we are here on earth living our lives, we are never wasting time. No, we are actually quickening the coming of God. That is a humbling thing. It is incredible. Our lives, in other words, our lives actually have and time's purpose. So again, our holiness matters. It matters because A, we're going to give an account for our lives. 
and B, because we are actually hastening the day of God through our holy living. And then Peter finishes verse 13 with such great hope that we are marked by hope as believers in Jesus. He says this, but according to his promise, that is, according to God's word, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is so good. I have been, can't tell you how much, I have been looking forward to teaching this chapter uh, for weeks, especially after two weeks of false teachers teaching on that. But oh, I was particularly looking forward to here in verse 13. It doesn't get much better than this. Verse 13. This is where all our hope, all of our hope will come to fruition in a new heaven and a new earth that for those who are in Christ, this, this is waiting for us. We will see, we will experience, we will live forever in a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. And listen, it will, it will be beautiful not just in its creative beauty, but it will be morally beautiful as well. We have never, never seen anything like this. And we have never experienced anything like that. And for those who don't know, righteousness will dwell there because the righteous one will be there. It's a place of perfect justice Total peace, fullness of joy. Peter probably has in mind here Isaiah 65 when he writes these words. The prophet Isaiah, a good prophet, says this. For behold, this is God speaking through Isaiah. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the formal things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. It's a place of order. It's a place of harmony. The prophet Isaiah here envisions God's people living free from sin there's no more pain. There are no more tears. Again, total peace is experienced. And again, there is fullness, complete joy. It is beautiful. Richard Baxter said, I think about that. I think about that 30 minutes every day. I don't know about you, but I could use an hour. This is how we get through our trials how we make it through our distress, how we fight through pain. We look forward to this day. This is where our hope is found, where it is rooted, as we live in a world filled with so much brokenness, so much pain, so much hurt. We are waiting on something, church. It's not here yet, but it is coming. God has intervened in the past and he will do it again. And when Jesus comes, he will right all wrongs. 
He will have a people for himself and we will be with him. It is coming soon. Listen, I do not know when. I'll never guess. But one thing is for sure. We're closer today than we were yesterday. And if the Lord gives us tomorrow, we'll be even closer than today. Jesus is coming. God's word reveals it. God's work in the past supports it. God is patient in delaying it, wanting all to come to faith in him. And followers of Jesus are called to live in view of it. Jesus is coming to which the church together responds. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come. Let's pray together.